Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Joining us today is, I think, someone we can now call a friend of the show who has been on a number of times. He is a best-selling author, and many of you will no doubt be familiar with him. His name is Douglas Murray. Hi, Douglas. Hi, Freddie. Very good to be with you. So we're here to talk about this book, your book, The War on the West. Except the war you are talking about is a war of ideas. It's about religion and culture and history and what you see as an anti-Western tilt to the way we understand those things. But meanwhile, in the past six or eight weeks, something very significant has happened, which is there's a real war suddenly going on. Doesn't that change the way we think about those things? Yes, a war on the outskirts of Europe. I mean, it's an extraordinarily important uh, event, of course. I mean, it feels like the end of a sort of post-Cold War era. Uh, people are being reminded, as I think it was Whittaker Chambers said, uh, that the monsters are real. You know? And it's shown, I mean, not many people have commented upon this, I think, but it's shown much more unanimity than we might have expected, that the West is actually capable of rallying um, against a, a, a real threat. And uh, I think before uh, Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, people would have been um, surprised by that, I think. Uh, surprised that uh, countries like Sweden, uh, which of course, as you know, took a, um, a view that World War II was too morally complex to intervene in, uh, would decide to help arm the Ukrainians and would now seek to join NATO. The war on the West, the war that you're describing in this book is, is an internal intellectual war, one that appears to be kind of anti-Western in its emphasis, and it covers all sorts of parts of our culture and history. Does the presence of a real war cast that culture war into shadow, do you think? Do you think it puts it in perspective and makes it look less significant? Well, first of all, of course, what I'm describing isn't just a culture war by any means. Uh, what I describe as a war on the West is something that's been going on for years, generations indeed. It's, it's going to go on for a very long time to come. Uh, it is a, a multi-generational shift within the West. Uh, caused primarily by the West, uh, a desire to rid ourselves of everything in our own past and culture, uh, to look at ourselves in the most negative possible light, to suffer a complete context collapse about what the rest of the world has been like historically and is like now. And uh, I believe this is, is primarily self-inflicted, albeit it's a 
um, a war on our, our pasts and ourselves that is very significantly encouraged by our geopolitical foes. My own observation is that um, very serious um, interjections of, of other things around the world have not so far been capable of stalling this constant self-evisceration of the West uh, to the West. Um, if we'd been speaking, I think we may have done at the beginning of the COVID epidemic, uh, many people thought, well, perhaps, you know, now that there's a really serious, you know, pandemic, uh, it's killing people across the world, maybe we'll stop some of this nonsense. No such thing happened. Uh, you might think, you might have hoped that a real war on the outskirts of Europe uh, would uh, make us see ourselves, our own society's virtues, our own society's advantages and, uh, and freedoms in, in a clearer light. And, and I, I see so far no evidence of that. The, the, there, is, there seems to be an idea that, that we in the West might get a sort of wake-up pill at some point. And yet we get jolts uh, which don't seem to make much of an impact on us. What you mentioned just a moment ago, though, about how the Western response has been surprising does suggest that it's different. It does feel like we are in a bit of a different world now than we were even three months ago, because the traditional narrative is that these kinds of self-eviscerations that you catalogue in this book, the kind of self-abnegation, the painting the West always as the villain, would lead to a weakened West that foes would then find easier if they actually took them on in a hard geopolitical context. And kind of the reverse has happened suddenly with Russia, that West doesn't look self-effacing at all. It looks really quite assertive. Oh, I disagree. I think that, I think that, that, that although it's not the primary reason why Vladimir Putin chose to invade Ukraine by any means, I think that the perception that the West puts out about itself has proved to be incredibly um, uh, encouraging uh, to despots like Vladimir Putin and the Communist Party in China. Um, it, it, they constantly reference um, our own cultural self-loathing, our own, our own weird games that we play about ourselves and propose themselves as the alternatives to them. A proposal, by the way, which some people, particularly on the right, sadly, these days fall for. Um, but it's very much a stimulus to them. Look at an example, one of the examples I give in, in, in the book, in the chapter on what, what the rest of the world is doing whilst we're doing this to ourselves. I give the example of something that happened just last year at the United Nations. The, the US ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas Greenfield, uh, uses International Racism Awareness Day at the UN to deplore America's racism say that America is still institutionally racist, uh, talk about the death of George Floyd and a, uh, a shooting which she claimed was racially inspired, which wasn't. And she said, you know, we are a racist country. And in the days afterwards, she went on to double down and say we've been racist since our beginning. Now, after she says this at the United Nations, on the floor of the United Nations, uh, she also says, uh, oh, and there are other racisms that go on in the world. There's the treatment of Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, and there's the, the treatment of the Uyghur uh, minority in China. Well, who's, who's the next country up on the floor at the UN but the uh, representative from the Chinese uh, Communist Party, who stands up on the floor of the United Nations and says, 
the United States has no right to interfere in our affairs or comment on our affairs in China because it has done something unique in the history of the United Nations and come here today and confessed its guilt. So since you have done something unprecedented and come to the United Nations, America, and said you're guilty and have been from the beginning, you have no right to tell us anything. Well, I regard that sort of thing as, yes, not just a self-inflicted wound, but a provocation uh, to other countries around the world. Uh, I agree there's been much more military unanimity than one might have expected. But again, I mean, you can look at uh, uh, polls that some of us have written about recently, such as the poll that showed that a, pretty much a majority of Americans, if uh, um, they faced a situation like that of uh, the Ukrainians, of another country uh, invading their country, that uh, uh, just about a majority of Americans said that they would leave America. They would not stay and fight. Effectively, they see nothing worth staying to fight for. Now, that is a somewhere along the line, that is a much bigger problem for the world than the heroic desire of Ukrainians to fight for their country. If the world's leading power so completely loses faith in itself and its people so completely lose faith in themselves that they don't even think there's a country worth protecting in the United States of America, then I would argue you see a much bigger chance of a geopolitical shift than you do from Vladimir Putin being humiliated in Ukraine, as I hope he very much hope he is. The example you gave there in the UN, I mean, the, the more recent one, I suppose, is Vladimir Putin, who has talked about J.K. Rowling. Actually, he sort of obviously sees himself as a player in the Western culture wars. He, taught, he speaks culture war language. And I just want to observe the confusing thing or the surprising thing which we need to take note of is that those people on the anti-woke side of the Western culture war sort of almost feel like they have an ally in Vladimir Putin because he talks in this, these kind of masculine terms about defending culture. Of course, yeah. in your definition, it's, he's Western. I mean, Russia is a, a Western country in, in the sense of being descended from Europeans and being a Christian predominantly country. So there's a sort of confusion going on, isn't there? What's I, I your say, take on say, that? Russia is... is, is, is largely Western, uh, not European. I mean, this is a, a question that lots of people have applied themselves to, not least Tolstoy. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to say about that particular corner that we might get caught in. But um, the, as, as for Putin putting himself in as a player, of course, and it's completely cynical. I mean, of course, it's completely cynical. Um, and I'm very sorry by the number, about the number of people who've been fooled by that cynicism. Um, as I am sorry for those people who thought, uh, amazingly, it seems to me, that Vladimir Putin was a devout, humble, believing Christian who was willing to stand up for Christendom. And um, uh, apart from the fact that he never seemed to me like a genuinely humble, devout, believing Christian, uh, if he were such a thing, he would not be using jihadist mercenaries to go and slaughter fellow Christ Orthodox Christians. Uh, by the thousands in Ukraine. So uh, I, I was never taken in by that, that uh, um, pretense of Putin's. And as I say, I'm sorry for the people who were. I, I should also just correct one other thing. What I'm talking about here is not woke. It, it, it's, 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 it's way beyond that. Uh, woke wars and so on are sort of interesting, but they are uh, essentially uh, um, 
surface conflict compared to what I'm describing in the war on the West. What I'm describing here are deep underlying shifts that have been happening in our societies during our lifetimes that have fundamentally altered the stories of our nations. It is so comprehensive now as I try to lay out in the book, it is far deeper than what we call the sort of woke wars. Um, it is an attempt to completely eviscerate the West's history, to strip its heroes away, sometimes literally pull them down, to leave our cultural landscape completely barren by looking at it always through this one remorselessly hostile lens, by saying, we in the West were guilty of the following crimes by pretending only we in the West were responsible for the following crimes, by not being interested in what other nations and peoples were doing simultaneously in history, and indeed basically having absolutely no understanding of what world history was like and not any understanding of what our own history was like. You could say that this has been a necessary corrective, that there was a time a couple of generations ago even where, for instance, Americans didn't know or didn't very often know that, say, the founding fathers had owned slaves or that um, a couple of generations ago, people didn't know in Britain very much about the negative sides of empire. You could easily say that and you could say, well, what we're undergoing is a sort of um, correction, a historical correction, uh, similar to the types of correction I wrote about in my previous book, The Madness of Crowds on social issues. Um, you could say this is what's going on, but it's so much more than this. It's so much more than a simple attempt to better understand complex areas of our history. It's become a, a, um, a, a, just the X-ray opposite of a jingoistic narrative of the kind that people presume was being taught a couple of generations ago. In a sense your book is is another corrective, isn't it? It's a, it's a corrective to what you see as an overcorrection. Yes. And so I guess I, I would ask you then to say, what, it, what should we think of the West? It, it appears from what you've written that we should be less shy about saying that the West is not only equal to, but in many ways superior to other cultures and other parts of uh, human civilization, and that many people would have an intuitive allergy or fear about saying that, but you come very close to saying that in this book. I mean, do you believe that West is best? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and I don't believe the people who uh, say otherwise. I mean, I put it plainly, I mean, would you rather be born in the 21st century in Britain or in China? I would definitely rather be born in Britain, yes. Good, me too. Uh, would you rather be born in 21st century America or 21st century Russia? Again, it's easy. Would you rather be born in 21st century Canada uh, or Australia or mm, almost any Middle Eastern country, perhaps Israel accepted? I, I think we all know. Okay, so, so wh why do we have the sort of shyness of admitting that the system we live in and benefit from um, is, is first of all, it's not pure luck. This is something I, I, I thought about a lot when I was writing my book two books ago, The Strange Death of Europe. There was a, a Norwegian minister actually who, who, who changed my mind on an issue here where 
I used to say there that one of the things we had a problem with in the West was how to deal with our luck. You know, we can look around the world and just see benighted societies all over the place. Uh, you know, significant numbers of people, millions of people across the world trying to come into the West. Millions of people every year try to come into Europe illegally. Millions of people every year try to break into America illegally from South America and Central America. Why? There must be something we're doing well. And this Norwegian minister said to me, Douglas, I don't like you using the word luck. Because she said, it isn't just luck. Now, I, I quote a famous uh, baseball player, Branch Ricky, towards the end of this, this book who said, said on one occasion that luck is the residue of design. Repeat it, luck is the residue of design. Now, that was effectively what this Norwegian minister was saying to me. And she went on to say, Douglas, we in Norway have the same energy reserves, uh, the same energy uh, supplies available to us as the Venezuelans. There is a reason why they are Venezuela now and we are Norway. And it's because we made good decisions. We made sensible decisions about our present and about our future. So, um, so what I believe has been if, happening- Can I just ask then, if, if it's not luck, and it's about a series of good decisions and a cultures that have been more innovative and more successful, why? That's the follow-up question, which I think, again, people struggle with because it's controversial. Why do you think Western cultures have ended up in this, as you describe it, superior position? There's an awful lot of reasons. I mean, a, a lot of it is is just what our ancestors did, um, realizations they came to. Take, um, uh, an awful lot, I mean, for instance, in the success of the West has depended on the scientific method, finally, finally taking root and being recognized as being correct, not because we came up with it, but because it works, you know, um, the recognition that mathematics was not some kind of preserve of white people or a discovery by white people. It was a discovery that all sorts of people had, had, had contributed to, not least the, the Arabs. Um, but the, 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 the reason why the mathematical um, process should be in place was because, because it works. Um, now, one of the reasons, one of the things I say towards the end of the book is we've been effectively in a period of being polite about all of this. Um, we've been polite in saying these sorts of things because we don't want to come across quite rightly as being jingoistic or we don't want to make people feel bad and all sorts of things like that. We don't want to come across badly to the world. But um, there's a limit to that, in my view. There's a limit to the the courtesy that you need to extend to people. But as I say at one point towards the book's close, um, let's be honest about it. You know, w when you get a global pandemic, uh, nobody goes to First Nations peoples or the Aboriginal communities of Australia and says, can you help us come up with a vaccine? Nobody does. And nobody trying to solve a mathematical problem goes for First Nation wisdom and says, I wonder if you could help us solve this problem through your other ways of knowing. Now, this, this isn't at all a frivolous point. Mathematics in the United States, as we speak, in schools, is being torn apart by teaching unions and others who are claiming that there is not just 
mathematics as in right answers and wrong answers, but white mathematics, which puts a ridiculous emphasis on correct answers, like they claim incredibly racistly, that they put a correct emphasis on things like punctuality. But they claim that non-white people have some special intuition about mathematics, which doesn't necessarily come to the same answers, but constitutes, quote, other ways of knowing. Well, I'm sorry, but we have to call time on this nonsense for the sake of people of all backgrounds and all nations. There are not other ways of knowing that have been proved to solve anything in these areas. Other ways of knowing are not going to help us find cures for Alzheimer's or any of the other illnesses that we need to find cures for in the 21st century. So if you're interested not just in the West getting better, but anything in the world getting better, one of the things, among many others, you would not chuck out is the Western tradition of science, rationalism, and much more. And as I show in remorseless detail, that's precisely what we are in the process of doing with throwing out the things that work in the name of something like courtesy, something like politeness. And there has to be a limit to that. One example that you mention is during the COVID pandemic, where the CDC and other organizations in the US started justifying kind of priorities for giving vaccinations and other kind of medical decisions based on correcting larger historic injustices. And I think there was some idea that it was a medical, I'm not sure what the phrase they used was, but it was, it, it was a medical emergency uh, to correct racism of some description. Tell us about that. I really can't emphasize enough that this is all so much deeper and worse than mere culture war stuff. Um, conservatives and others used to claim that the kind of nonsense I've just been briefly outlining would not flood into STEM subjects, as they call them in, in the US. That um, the sort of deconstructionist, um, relativistic tendencies that came up from theory in the 60s onwards and so on, would become a sort of stupid preserve of the humanities. And people would write unread books about this in terms of literature or critical thinking and so on, but never thought that these movements, including in the end, the movement that calls itself anti-racism, which has become anti-whiteness, that these movements would flood into, for instance, medicine. And as I show at the end of the first chapter, which is about what I describe as the war on white people, which is, we have to be frank about, um, there is all sorts of racism in the world today, as there has been historically. The West has a history of racism, as sadly every society does. A history, it's not our history, it's not the, the only way to see our history. But there is a corrective that is going on at the moment, very misguidedly, as I lay out, in which the presumption is because in the past people of one skin color were looked at and talked about in a certain way, you can get uh, justice for that by currently talking about another group of people in the same way or similar ways. And this has consequences. It has consequences in education, where, where there are now efforts within ed education to um, 
uh, unfairly elevate people of certain racial backgrounds, i.e. non-white, whilst keeping others down, primarily white students and Asian students, weirdly enough, in the name of anti-racism. But in the medical field, this then becomes an ethical nightmare. You'll remember that at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were all told one of the one of the fastest um, whip, whiplash, I think, of our lifetimes, probably, was the swift movement from stay home, don't meet granny or you'll kill her, to if you're a good person, you should be out on the streets by your thousands because racism is the real pandemic. Now, this wasn't just political activists saying this. This wasn't woke warriors saying this. This was a thousand medical professionals in the United States signing a letter saying that the protests, which included the burning of American cities, were legitimate because racism was the real pandemic. This has been returned to repeatedly. And we now have medical journals, and I cite them again with remorseless detail, medical journals saying that doctors should prioritize people of non-white racial background in order to come to a position of racial equity. And, and let, let's not beat around the bush of what this means. This means in the name of anti-racism, you would not treat white people, even if they were first in line, perhaps especially if they were first in line. Again, I reiterate, this is not a kooky fringe movement. It is in the absolute heart of medical ethics, as it's now described, and medical practice in the most important country in the world, the United States of America. Let's talk, if we could, about religion, because you have a whole section in the book about religion. Um, just a moment ago, when we were discussing maths and STEM subjects, um, you were dismissive of the idea of other ways of knowing, and in that context, I understand what you meant. But of course, religion is, an, is another way of knowing. Um, at least that's how it would think of itself. Uh, your thesis seems to be there's a sort of anti-Christian bias going on, accompanying the anti-white bias. Uh, are you a Christian? Myself, I'm a cultural Christian, which is about halfway there. I know um, I know what the benefits are of the Judeo-Christian tradition, and I think it's uh, very unwise to completely jettison it. Um, that's a conclusion I came to many years ago. I, I, I believe that it's a great mistake to um, think that you can sit happily on a branch whilst soaring at the root of the tree. But in a way, what's more important than that, or what's, 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 what's less often said, and what I, what I try to explain in the book, is that one of the giveaways of the war on the West at the moment is the fact that the war is not just on that tradition, it's on the secular tradition of the West as well. It's on the Enlightenment tradition of the West. As we speak, there is not a figure of the European Enlightenment who has not been put through this rancid spin cycle of vengeance. Every single one of them has been brought down in recent years. Uh, Immanuel Kant, uh, John Stuart Mill, David Hume, Voltaire. So we're talking, as I, as I tried to explain at the beginning, we're talking about something which is, is totalistic in its desire to destroy every part of the foundations of the Western tradition. You can tell that 
when you see that the tradition, that the religious tradition and the secular traditions of the West are both in the lines of fire in equal measure. It does bring us a little bit back to the Ukraine story because immigration, which is normally quite a clear-cut political argument, has once again been made a bit more complicated by this Ukraine story because suddenly there are people on the right who are very keen on large numbers of refugees coming from Ukraine based on the fact that they are Christian and that they share the cultural basis of what would be their host country and therefore the people on the right are keen on them. Where do you stand on that? Do you think that should be a factor and do you think countries like the UK should open their arms to large numbers of Ukrainian refugees? Uh, first of all, uh, I, 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 I dispute what you said originally, which was that immigration is ever a clear um, subject. I think quite the opposite. I think it's probably the murkiest, worst discussed subject in Britain or any other country. Uh, I wrote about the strange death of Europe. I mean, almost, almost nobody in Britain is willing to discuss or even think about immigration seriously or honestly. I can count on one hand the number of people who are. It's filled lies. It's filled with untruths and half-truths and pretenses that we do things that we don't do. So well, let, no. let's correct that right now then, Douglas. What is the serious and truthful answer to the question? Should the Christian culture of a country like Ukraine be a factor in whether we accept them as refugees? It certainly should be a factor. I'm not in favour of large numbers of refugees from Ukraine being brought into Britain, uh, not least because it's highly in, um, ineffective. Uh, various people, I mean, the usual monomaniacs, it has to be said, who still haven't recovered from their hangover of 2016, uh, have been saying in recent days, have been trying to say that there's something deeply sinister about the fact that Britain hasn't taken in as many uh, um, refugees from Ukraine as, say, Poland or Hungary. And I mean, I assume these people have never looked at a map. Um, but there is nothing unusual about the fact that most refugees from a war zone are going to end up in the countries beside their country, the country they're fleeing from. It's been shown, not least by Sorry, I sound like I'm absolutely obsessed with Sweden today, and I don't mean to. I well, don't mean to. Be I'm happy that you are as a half Swede. Pandering to my host here. Uh, but a very distinguished Swedish demographer showed uh, a number of years ago, uh, Tina Sandanji, that, uh, that it costs something like a hundred times more to uh, transport somebody from uh, the uh, countries that they're fleeing to a country in Europe, for instance, uh, than it does to keep them in the environment around the country they're fleeing from. So it, it's enormously economically wasteful. That's the first thing to, to fly. I mean, never mind hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians to, say, Britain or Scandinavia or France. It makes, it makes very little sense because you could do very much more uh, and be more economical in what you do by um, assisting people in camps in the neighboring countries. That's the first thing. So the people who say we need to take in more Ukrainian refugees, I'm afraid many of these people are high. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On the hope that this is this generation's kinder transport. They sort of want to cover themselves in in the in the um, in the rightful glory that people feel for saving Jews in World War II. This is nothing like that situation. It's an appalling situation in Ukraine, but it is not that. Um, so, of course, the neighboring countries should be uh, bearing the burden. And we in Britain and other countries like America should be doing everything they can to help those countries in that burden. But the second thing, obviously, is these people, um, unlike the migrants who um, uh, came into Europe in, for instance, 2015, um, these people will largely be wanting to return home after the conflict is over. Um, the, the Ukrainians who are leaving, I don't think I, I, there's no evidence that they, they actually just want to move to other parts of the world by their millions. They want to be in, her, in their homes. They want to be at home and they, many, and they will want to rebuild their country after this terrible war. And so it doesn't make sense to fly them around the rest of the globe. It makes sense to keep them near the country. And there's one other thing I'd say which has to be said, which is that the movement of peoples in 2015 into Europe were of peoples very, very unlike uh, um, culturally uh, the peoples of Europe. I never forget a conversation I had with one official in one of the, the camps in the southern uh, uh, islands in 2015 who said these people are just not known to us. That is true. Europe is now a very, very diverse group, but there is no way that you can pretend that a 
Muslim from Sudan has more in common with uh, um, your average Pole than a Ukrainian does. It's it's a, a ridiculous lie. And there's one final addendum to that that's worth mentioning. The people fleeing Ukraine are principally women and children and men of non-fighting age. That is exactly the opposite from the situation in 2015, when the people who lied, as they did in the majority, to get into Europe, uh, were young men who left the women and children behind in the main. The vast majority of the movement in 2015 was young men from the Middle East, sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere. So this is a totally different situation. And the people trying to equate the situation of Ukraine with 2015 are simply trying to make some kind of racial point and pretend once again that the answer is, as with everything, that we in Europe and the West are racist. I'm just trying to follow the logic of this book in terms of what it might mean for other policy areas. And if you're being kind of bold enough in this book to say that, yes, you do think that Western culture is superior to other cultures in all sorts of... I don't dwell on the word superior, by the way. No, but but when I asked you that, you acquiesced to it. Well, yeah, I think think we have to be careful with the word superior, as you well know, Freddie. I'm very careful about this in the book. If your plan is to be more assertive about the positive aspects of the West and the cultural goods that have come down to us from previous generations. In terms of immigration, is there a kind of follow-on logic from that which says if you're a a host country considering which countries to welcome immigrants from, you would prioritise those fellow members of the West? Is that is that no. what we should conclude from this? No one knows what to do about immigration in the 21st century. because It's such a damn difficult subject that, as I say, almost nobody actually thinks about it, honestly. Um, the reality is the world cannot move to the West. And our politicians of all parties pretend otherwise. Let's do a level down from that. Can even the people in the world who are oppressed move to the West? No. No. Will any mainstream politician ever admit that? No. Currently, we lie to ourselves that anyone anywhere in the world who's oppressed can simply apply through the asylum system. I'm afraid the UN Convention on Refugees was set up after the Second World War for very understandable reasons. And it it has become a fiction because the nature of travel in the modern world, the ease of travel, the ease of communications, have simply made it much, much easier for anyone in the world to move anywhere else where they think they will get a better life. Um, but the, 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 as it were, the cultural question around that, which I, I see behind your question, is, is, is very important to dwell on. One of the advantages of the West is they have been enormously receptive, unusually receptive, to other cultures and ideas from around the world. And this is a This is a really important point to bring across. In the last few years, we've heard this talk of so-called cultural appropriation. This is a very frivolous, a morally frivolous claim that is thrown around, that the West appropriates other cultures. Um, And one of the things I do in the last chapter of this book is I hope to explode and tear apart this fatuous idea there is there is no such thing as a cultural appropriation and even if there were it is not principally what the west has been doing for centuries 
The West is unusually and always has been unusually interested in other cultures. And it is not, by the way, a favor that is reciprocated from around the world. There, you know, the, the late uh, philosopher George Steiner once said, you know, that he was always haunted by the thought that the boats only came in one direction. They only went out from Europe to find out about the world. Europe, the West, when it found things around the world, wanted to learn from it, wanted to absorb it because it admired it. Now, of course, the Western rapacious instinct for going out and finding out what the world was. Don't forget how ignorant we were, were until almost yesterday in historic terms about the world. I and mean, when we read people like Rousseau talking about the world, we've got to remember most, most of these people have not been further than Switzerland in their own lives. They didn't have a clue what they were talking about. Um, but when Europeans in particular did discover the rest of the world, they wanted to learn from it. And I give the ex example after example of just how unfair the claim that we appropriated other cultures is. In some countries, including India, it was Western anthropologists who went and handed, discovered and handed back the ancient languages of India to the peoples of India, something that nobody else had done. Um, it was Europeans who were so interested in civilizations other than their own that they even found out about long dead civilizations in Egypt and elsewhere and deciphered their languages. It was, it was European artists when they discovered the East and the Far East who took these influences and absorbed them into their work and enriched Western culture immeasurably by doing so. This was not theft. This was an expression of, of wonder. And uh, it has all been, like everything else, played out in this remorseless racism light, uh, which, which just is, is so inadequate to understanding the task at hand. No society can continue when it wars on everything in its origins and tries to pretend that it can create year zero and start afresh. Um, nothing in Western society will be able to continue successfully if we allow that to happen, if we strip away our heroes. I mean, we haven't touched on this yet, but as you know, one of the chapters is on history and the way in which we've eviscerated the historical landscape. Um, if you decide that you have nobody to look up to from your past, other than a, a, f a few uh, um, minor permitted figures who fit the cultural weaponry uh, of, of, of your critics, um, if you decide that you know, to, to strip away Churchill, for instance, from British history, you don't really have British uh, history. You don't, you don't really have any ability to feel pride in your history. That's why they've come for Churchill so hard in recent years. If you strip away Lincoln, you basically strip away America. You don't have an America. If you go for the founding fathers, there's nothing much left once you've taken out the founding fathers and both sides in the Civil War and pretty much everyone since. And so this is a real problem because you end up with a completely emptied historical and political landscape. All that will happen from that is total disintegration, a total disintegration. There will be some people who will hold on to the memory of this, but many others who will just forget it. And they will walk around an emptied wasteland of empty plinths 
or fatuous figures who were approved yesterday by something like Sadiq Khan's Robespierrean named Committee on the Virtue of Monuments in Public Life, or whatever he's called, the commission that's meant to go around London and decide what in our history is permitted, what is going to have to be torn down because it doesn't fit our current ideologies. And how amazing it is, isn't it, Freddie? How amazing that anyone before 2022 wouldn't have shared all of our current views. Um, so the first thing is that you simply have nothing left, no, no shared story, no pride in your past, um, and the whole thing just falls apart. And anyone can do whatever they want in that situation. And you also see more people falling for Vladimir Putin's story of Russia as a sort of cultural bulwark and you fall for the Chinese Communist Party's version of their own story, which is that somehow, amazingly, they're a non-racist country. <laughs> Let's not even get into that. But you talk about the, the, the danger of a backlash as well. I mean, it, it, towards the end, you say that one way that it could go is that there will be a kind of majoritarian backlash of some kind where people will decide to become once again proud of their story in a rather nasty way. Do you think that's, that's right. likely? Well, one of the things I try to warn against is that I see, I see no reason to, why we can't have a reasonable view about our own past, which takes in good things and bad things. But I do not believe that it is possible to teach people to hate everything about themselves and to pretend that they're guilty. I'm guilty of nothing to do with slavery or colonialism. Neither are you. We're guilty of nothing. We bear no guilt. It's a morally preening pretense that we do. And I believe that if you were to say to a minority population in a country, what, and we haven't come on to these race hucksters, but again, not by any means fringe figures like Robin DiAngelo or the man who calls himself Ibram X. Kendi, um, these people say, have said completely openly in best-selling books, there is no good form of being white. No good form of being white. And secondly, you can't escape being white. So you're locked forever if you're white in being evil. Now, if you were a minority population in a country, I think that would be a very hard thing to persuade a minority to go along with, to believe to act upon, to pretend that throughout your life, the best thing you can do is to be born, realize that you're evil, and then slide and sidle out of life having hopefully not been noticed. I think that would be highly unlikely to be able to achieve that if you were trying to do that against the minority. Here's the thing. In the West, we're not talking about a minority. We're still talking about majority populations. What is the likelihood that majority populations in countries like Britain and America are going to go along with that forever. I think small. Let me give an example of, of the lack of... Maybe but so what happens when they cease to go along with it? That's what I'm trying to right. find well, out. So what several, does that look like? There's several ways. And what I, I, I sketch out in the book what a reasonable estimation of ourselves and our past would look like. What I'm afraid is that the so-called anti-racists, who are, of course, just racists, 
at this stage, the people like Kendi, the people like D'Angelo, are going to push white people who never previously needed to or felt any desire to identify as white into identifying themselves as white against other groups. Uh, we've discussed this before on Unheard. Um, there are certain games you can see already emerging in that. Uh, the, the renewed interest in hereditary traits like IQ differentials uh, is one of the early warning signs that some white people are getting ready for a kind of backlash against this. So I can completely see the delineation of a backlash against it. And it would be inevitable if the new racists don't ease up on what they're doing. I'm very much hoping that that's not the case. And what I'm trying to say to people and try to hand people is a reasonable estimation of themselves and of their pasts. One in which we can understand things that we have done, which were bad, which we now understand as bad, slavery, for instance, but also to understand that every society in history until Britain decided to abolish slavery and then police the high seas at great costs in blood and treasure to stop slavery across the world. Before then, every society in history built, uh, used slaves. Uh, who, who do people think carried the stones to the Parthenon? Alcibiades himself. Um, every society uh, had slaves. It was our societies that were, were the first to realize that it was morally abhorrent. So, Get our, get our understanding of ourselves in context. Realize that, yes, racism exists in our societies. It's not the story of our society. It's not the sole lens through which to look at our history or our present. Um, you know, be able to appreciate other cultures, but don't feel the need to do so at the cost of ever appreciating anything about the culture you've inherited yourself. You, you know, that would be a start. Do you think we've seen real-world signs of this backlash starting already? Do you think, for example, the government in Hungary is behaving like that? Do you think the Trump government that's no longer there was an early sign of this? What about the election in France that is happening this in pretty much today? Uh, yeah, I think these are much more a some type of political backlash, of course. I mean, Trump was a was a very ugly, crude weapon that the American public were offered to hit and kick at the balls of the people who'd been insulting them for many years. Um, not just on cultural issues, on economic issues as well, but it was a very big factor in that. You know, the, um, of course, again, um, most people want to be able to think well of themselves it's quite a small, small proportion of society that's made up of actual masochists. You know, most people would like a reasonable view of their history in which they were allowed to feel some pride and, and, and not be kicked at repeatedly and told that they're privileged by dint of their skin color and told that they must feel sad and, and, and guilty about their skin color for the rest of time and and all sorts of other things. Of course, these are all versions of a sort of political backlash. Um, see, anything, I, I don't think see anything surprising about that. I'm, I'm, the one thing I'm surprised about is that, is that it hasn't been worse so far. Well, I'm going to end where we started, which is looking at what's happening in between Russia and Ukraine. 
and trying to tie these things together because they do seem connected. That in a sense, the backlash you're predicting, which would be a sort of distorted version of a newly assertive culture that is planning to be you know, proud of its supposed either superiorities or strengths over other cultures, masculine, unafraid of political correctness. These are the kinds of things we're witnessing in the Putin regime. So do you think, in a way, that what we're seeing from Vladimir Putin in Russia is a kind of fast-forwarding or some sort of conclusion of these kind of uh, culture war and deeper intellectual battles? And we should take a kind of domestic lesson from it. First of all, no, I mean, I don't recognize the list you just gave out. Uh, the list you just gave out is not a list that I would give out. It's a slightly distorted version of a list that I would say of what I think needs to be um, re recaptured. I, I don't think I use any of the terms you just used. Okay. But... Um, well, let's, let's, just, let's just get this accurate then. So the, the, the chaps of the book, religion, I mean... Putin, as you correctly say, is, doesn't, one wouldn't expect him to be a model Christian, but there's a lot of talk of the Orthodox Church and it's part of the narrative he employs. It's a, it's a, but you'd be a fool to believe that. You'd be a fool to believe that. But he, he's using the rhetoric, right? He's, he's, he's using the rhetoric of a, of a civilization state. He's using the rhetoric he's, of, he's, of shared religion and cultural using. strengths. He's to to using, prosecute his, his ends. He's using a couple of things like that to cover over the fact that he has run an oligarchic, kleptocratic, thieving society in which he has managed to ransack the wealth of the country and claim that only other people have done it. Um, he's even corrupted the Orthodox Church, not for the first time in history, admittedly. But, I mean... You'd be a fool to believe that that's actually Vladimir Putin, any more than you'd be a fool to believe that Vladimir Putin actually cared about anything other than his own accruing of vast wealth. I'm not willing to see um, these very important issues seen through the prism of Vladimir Putin any more than I'd be willing to see them seen through the prism of Donald Trump. I'm not, I'm not suggesting you're endorsing or agreeing with him. I'm rather asking whether the warnings that you give about a potential future in which a distorted version of these ideas becomes newly assertive and the result is really quite dangerous, whether that some of that we actually see in real life happening before our eyes uh, in Russia. But what he has done, what he has done is to appeal to very, very deep instincts within the Russian people. Okay? And there is some similarity in that he recognizes that the Russian people felt humiliated to a great extent, not just in the 90s, but by the 90s, by what happened under Yeltsin, by the fact that having thought that they were an incredibly important, perhaps the most important and powerful country in the world, they discovered that they, they couldn't do anything. Okay. What part of Putin's, you know, unfortunate genius as a leader was to recognize some of these things and to play a version of them to the Russian people to present himself as the great hero, the great bare-chested warrior and, 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 and much more. But that isn't to say that people 
aren't desiring to have pride. It's to point to the fact that that is a very deep instinct in people to feel some kind of solidarity and pride in their country. And when that pride is is seen to be or felt to be trampled upon, very dangerous things can happen. And when dangerous people like Vladimir Putin recognize this and then take it in a terrible direction, even worse things happen. And you can make all sorts of claims and lies on the top of that. So that is a potential danger we should yes. look out for then, yes. because if the society you describe is, it could be ripe for a, a kind of Western equivalent yes. in and some I, Western countries. I've said before on the record that, I mean, you know, a lot of people think Trump is the worst imaginable thing to have come from the American right. Um, it's not the worst thing that could come by a long shot, not by a long way, because again, a, a peoples who are made to feel in the majority deeply, deeply ashamed and are humiliated. And let's just get this correct. Not just humiliated, but gleefully humiliated. Humiliated with glee by their opponents and antagonists. Don't forget that much of the politics in America in particular at the moment is not about winning an argument. It's about hurting your opponent as much as you can. Kicking them as hard as you can where you know it'll hurt. Why has that come about? Because they've got into a cycle of effective violence on that politically. So what would be one way to try to avoid that? For, for instance, reasonable, respectable Democrats in America of the kind that existed until not long ago, people in the tradition of Daniel Patrick Moynihan and others, who were fiercely patriotic and proud of America and recognized its achievements as well as recognizing where it had gone wrong, um, people like that representing the mainstream across both of the parties. That would be a reasonable estimation. There's no reason why our future in the West has to be um, either total disintegration and hatred of our past or the election of some Putin-esque figure. What it requires is the reasonable outlook on ourselves that I try to explain and outline in the war on the West, which would allow us a reasonable estimation of ourselves, which was which is, and all of the polling shows this, a completely mainstream desire. We have people in societies like Britain who keep wanting to kick us again and again where it hurts. And one of the challenges will be to push these people away, to swat them away, to swat away their arguments, as I try to do, without, in response, wanting to kick them even harder in places where we know that it'll hurt them. What would your message be to political actors and people in the discourse on the right of politics in the US who find themselves oddly sympathetic to Vladimir Putin at this point and are found stopping just short of defending him? What's your message to them? How could you be so foolish as to fall for this man? Uh, there is a type of cynicism, which um, uh, Alan Bloom, among others, identified, a type of cynicism which is cynical about everything other than the thing it ought to be most cynical about. Um, we know this in the information age. Um, people who are 
understandably suspicious of mainstream media, like utterly justifiably suspicious of mainstream media, because they've seen the Washington Post lie, and they've seen the New York Times lie. And then they end up falling for, say, Russia Today. Okay. This is a completely avoidable trap. But unfortunately, as I say, there is a tendency at the end point of some form of modern cynicism that you're cynical about everything other than the thing you ought to be most cynical about. And a lot of people, sadly, particularly actually of our generation, Freddie, and, and particularly a generation younger than us now, have very little understanding of what actual propaganda is like from other regimes around the world. Just this week, the China Daily News publishes a cartoon of Uncle Sam at the Oval Office desk, uh, covered in corpses and everything. It says, uh, America, always, you know, George Floyd's and separation of families at the border. You think the Chinese Communist Party cares about racist killings? You think the Chinese Communist Party cares when it's separating a million people from their families in, 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 the, in one province of China alone? You think they care about any of this? Of course, they don't. A certain type of younger person in particular absorbs this and thinks these people are telling the truth. Now, that used to be a problem on the gullible left, and it's now a problem on the gullible right. You now have people on the gullible right who believe the propaganda pushed out by the Kremlin and by the Chinese Communist Party. And there's a reason. There's a reason, which is that idiotic actors in our own societies in the West browbeat us with false claims about Kremlin for years, we were told that the Kremlin bought Brexit. I mean, I hate these people for wasting our time and for running down our moral resources and others on this crap. All the Cadwallers and everything else, all of these people who had no evidence and didn't even bother to find out why the British people might have voted to leave the European Union legitimately. They didn't bother. They invented Kremlin conspiracies. In the same way in America, a whole class of journalists and politicians didn't bother to try to work out why the American people might legitimately have voted in this man Trump. They didn't bother. They went immediately for Russian conspiracies. One of the many reasons I deeply resent these people is because they made millions of people in the West ignore all claims of Russian propaganda. They, 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 they made people more idiotic because they used false claims, never paid any price for that, for that, never paid any price for their lies, in some cases are still pumping those lies around. So there are plenty of people in the West now, sadly, again, of the left and of the right who say, you know, I don't want to hear about this, this Kremlin stuff because you threw that at us for years and it wasn't true then and we don't think it's true now. No, sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's true. But these, this, is, this is one of the consequences of lies and of pumping lies into societies without any cost. You make society stupider and you make it more vulnerable. And, and I mean, we should have unending contempt for the people who have done this, as well as trying to correct the people who have very sadly fallen into that trap. Douglas, we have to leave it there, but thank you so much for your time and for sharing your thoughts for people who want to read more about the war on the West. It is available in the UK and the US out now. Thanks, Douglas. Thank you for your time. That was Douglas Murray, 
talking about his new book, The War on the West, which lays out what he sees as a self-destructive, self-eviscerating campaign to undermine the West from within itself across topics as broad as race, culture, religion, and history. Well, suddenly in the past six weeks, that war has come face to face with a very real and present war in Ukraine. And instead of the one simply putting the other into the shade, what we discussed there is how the two battles are deeply connected, intertwined. Vladimir Putin, the American right, the culture war, the battle on the ground, all seems to be part of a bigger single conversation. Thank you to Douglas, as always, for his time. And thanks to you for tuning in. This was Unheard. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.